Space Junk. Space Junk. Space Junk. This is completely ridiculous. This stuff hurts my brain. Anyway, I do like you both, Kev and Michael, so I'm gonna listen. Well, hello. I am Michael Sean Wright. And I am Kev Abazajian. Well, doctor. I mean, you, you worked Kev. very hard for the degree, so let's put the doctor yeah, in it. Physicists drop the doctor because then oh. people want us to like save people from heart attacks or something. So we don't really want to. It hurts be, right here, Doc. Yeah. It hurts right here. Can we talk about a very weighty subject? Sure. It used to be that we measured weight on a chunk of metal kept in a vault, but that all changed because now we have adopted Planck's constant. What in the world are we talking about? Planck's constant uh, was one of the first constants associated with quantum mechanics. And um, Planck himself found that, uh, Max Planck, uh, found that uh, light is quantized. And if you make it quantized, then it works as a way of describing thermal light. And that was a, a, an onsatz of his. He actually didn't think light was quantized, uh, but it worked as a, a mathematical formulation. And it turned out he was right, actually. It was quantized. And um, now he is one of the most famous physicists of our past century. And because of that discovery, uh, it led to the discovery of quantum mechanics. So at the National Institute of Science and Technologies, they got a unanimous vote to adopt this new way of measurement. This is really significant because now we have a weight measurement based upon actual science. Right. That's right. So this is a fundamental step in terms of understanding our physical world in that we don't need to rely on a single instrument somewhere or sitting somewhere that you have to calibrate against that can change because it you know corrodes or ages, um, we have it based on a fundamental property of nature itself. And it was the last uh, last unit to have this done to it, actually. So it used to be that uh, the meter was a stick sitting somewhere that pe everybody calibrated against. And, um, and uh, you know, the second was also based on a clock that everybody calibrated against. Now... We don't need to rely on a single device preserved somewhere. It is actually based on a fundamental property of, of, of space and time. What I love about science is it's humans, right? The humans. John Pratt, who was one of the leading researchers on this project, had an amazing statement on it. He says, in this era of violence and vitriol, when it seems that there's so little on which people can agree, redefinition represents something so sublime. I love that quote. And it is, uh, it really captures the essence of what science tries to do. And that is uh, something that Rebecca Goldstein, uh, a philosopher of science has said, which is we use science to tease out the truth from nature. And that's exactly what we're trying to do in terms of just getting very basic quantities to be on firm footing, which is like, what is mass? What is, what is a kilogram? What is a second? What is a length scale of a meter? So there was two uh, versions of this release of this gigantic news uh, from NIST. One was the actual press release from NIST, and the other one was Sarah Kaplan of the Washington Post, who really brought the humanity back into this story and really kind of captured the joy. 
when I think about places like University of California, Irvine, which this is really kind of the epicenter of the research for dark matter, it's people. It's humans having tea, talking, thinking about these things, wrestling with these ideas. But I really want to amplify the humanity of this. It is. It's a human endeavor. And it's, it's um, you know, uh, it's something that we here at UCI have kind of accidentally had, or maybe by design, because people are, are uh, coming to a place where that's, uh, this activity is happening, is that we've gotten a, a, a group of people that are very interested on the question of what dark matter is. And dark matter is 85% of the matter in the universe, and we have no idea uh, what it is fundamentally. And um, that's one of the things that's driving a lot of the research and a lot of people's motivations. So, so many of the uh, physicists and astronomers that work here at UCI. Sarah goes on, and when she's describing what these moments were like as they were getting towards this uh, standardization based on Planck's constant, she says that uh, the nerds gathered in these basements had transcended their human biases and earthly flaws to make an observation so precise it will work for all times and for all people. That's right. That's that's really what you're uh, aiming for in this kind of process of defining um, the unit of a kilogram in that you want to be able to uh, put it into a firmament that is based on some fundamental property of nature itself and of 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 the uh, constituent physics and of the of that nature instead of having to rely on a um, a temporary uh, uh, device like a uh, a kilogram sitting in a vault in Paris. It was over a hundred years ago that Planck uh, really kind of perfected the idea that energy is really expressed in discrete units. It's quantized, right? How far have we gotten since then? Well, it's really, you know, the 20th century, the activity of in the physical sciences and physics in particular for the past hundred years has been overwhelming. We went from not knowing that particles are quantum objects that uh, behave under the rules of quantum mechanics. Uh, we had, you know, electricity and magnetism from, from uh, Maxwell. But we didn't know the fundamental, you know, constituents of particle physics to be that of particles and waves in this duality until the early 20th century. And then since then, that concept of the fact that things are quantized has been developed in two different directions. One is like material science and the collective behavior of quantum objects. And then the other side is what is the fundamental, uh, you know, constituent nature of those particles, and that's particle physics. And particle physics has just completely, uh, you know, evolved in a very uh, uh, broad way, and so has condensed matter physics, so is, is the nature of material. But we have some things that don't change, right? The speed of light, the behavior of atoms, electromagnetism, since 1875 to this year, those don't change. Right. Um, th the Those things do not... One of the things about that that happened in the late 19th century was that the laws of physics were actually doing very well. Maxwell's laws, Newton's laws of gravity, combined together, described everything we saw very, very well. And at the end of the 19th century, people were talking about the end of physics, that basically, you know, everything else from here on out is just details to fill in for 
um, you know, uh, engineers, basically. Physics is done. We understand all of reality based on electricity and magnetism. And now, uh, uh, you know, what kind of the chip in that armor of, of, of what happened was that Planck uh, was dealing with a problem deal, uh, of the distribution of colors of light coming out of a thermal object. And it wasn't well described by the, uh, by the theories at the time. There were problems at the low energy scale and at the high energy scale. And so with his onsets that light is quantized, he was able to show that uh, you can derive the distribution of the colors of light in a thermal object like the sun or a light bulb, that uh, the old thermal kind of light bulbs, the, the tungsten ones. You can describe that with, uh, with his equation. And you know, one of the best things that I do at this university is teach students and I am teaching a quantum physics course right now, and we actually derive the Planck distribution using the quantization of light from scratch uh, in, in the course that I teach. So so quantum mechanics really took a leap forward with the idea of an oven, right? Drilling a hole in an oven to kind of measure. Remember that experiment? Exactly. So that's that's the kind of perfect thermal distribution that, that you're trying to describe with the with Planck's uh description of, of, of light and its its uh, colors. You know, it's, it's easiest to think of it as colors instead of energies because we all see colors and blue light is higher energy than red light. Um, and so those, that kind of uh, describing the, the distribution of the brightnesses of light from coming from, say, a, a hot piece of metal that's pulled out of the fire, that is a thermal object, but the perfect thermal object is actually completely in equilibrium with everything around it, and that's the interior of an oven. And so if you poke a small hole in an oven, and that is actually the best thermal source you can have. When we come back, I want to talk about inflation. Okay. Not money, the universe. of the Starship Enterprise, stardate 5943.7. Captain Kirk, this is Lieutenant Uhura. Mr. Spock is ready to patch in. Go ahead, Mr. Spock. I'm on the surface of the destroyed barbarian planet now, Captain. Destroyed? What do you see, Mr. Spock? The surviving inhabitants are in a dreadful condition. It seems they can't control their limbs, and their minds are dull and useless. Fascinating. They seem to be in a state identical to that curious 20th century Earth disease called hard drug abuse. I suspect it has destroyed all meaningful life on this wretched planet. A tragic find, Mr. Spock. As a Vulcan, I find the need for hard drugs to be totally illogical. But as a half-human Spock, surely you can appreciate the suffering that hard drug abuse causes. We can only hope that other civilizations will not make the same mistake. Space chunks! Can we do away with this idea of Big Bang? Yeah, we can. I think that 
people, you know, want to talk about a big bang in terms of, um, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by big bang? One, we use that term kind of, that was actually kind of like the joke. Hey, it really wasn't a big bang. What we're talking about is inflation. Right. So the, the, the term big bang has had a lot of permutations. And it's basically went from uh, kind of a, a negative statement for the for, from the steady state cosmologists saying that the universe has been the same forever, and uh, stop uh, with your you know expanding universe description. That uh, if it's expanding, it means that at some point it was very dense and it had a singular origin with a, a point like um, uh, existence, and so that expansion from a point to a big big cosmos that we see now was really uh, laughed at by the steady state people and they called it oh that's that big bang those big bang people and uh, but it's actually become synonymous with all of cosmology itself so when people talk about an alternative to big bang theory it often is understood that cosmology is completely wrong and now we have to have a completely different uh, model and uh that is not quite right. It, it, the Big Bang Theory is uh, often thought to be all of cosmology. But the origin of the Big Bang is that it had a singular point-like or uh, existence at some point in the finite past. And that's only about 14 billion years ago. Uh, you know, that's a long time, but it's finite. And um, the fact that it not did not necessarily have to have a point like origin um, in any finite period of time is actually quite new and um, uh, goes back to a steady state cosmology because we could just be the latest iteration of an inflating bubble uh, and that's that's where inflation comes in I think I understand and I think I agree with that for me uh, the idea that we are constantly trying to prove ourselves wrong is really exciting. That's the amazing thing about science. And you don't get famous in science for agreeing with, with everybody. You get famous in science for, um, for disagreeing and then proving that you're right and having other people verify your claims. And this is one of the things that I, I like to really emphasize in my general ed courses for, for in our physics department is that people often think, you know, there's a, a complete groupthink among scientists, and that does happen. There are biases that come in when people, uh, you know, uh, agree on a certain result and then try to replicate that. But that's not how you get famous. You get famous by finding something wrong in the previous results, finding something incorrect in everybody's assumptions up to then, and then fixing it, uh, or at least going on the path of fixing it. And then that's, you know, you become Einstein, you show that Newton was wrong, or you become Planck because you showed that uh, Maxwell's equations did not describe the complete properties of light. One of the things that we try to uh, overcome yeah, the misinformation within movies and television. Now, there's a great organization that helps connect scientists with filmmakers and writers like myself. And then we get to movies like Interstellar, where there's Kip Thorne, who won the Nobel for detection of gravitational waves, 
doing a movie like Interstellar, where the rule was on the film, you can bend the laws of physics, you just can't break them. That was a great movie in that regard, is that it actually did take the laws of physics as we know them and make this great story around them. And, um, you know, it, it, it got into the nuts and bolts of general relativity and what we may know about the quantum completion of gravity and had fun with it. It was an amazing story because of that. And, and, you know, it took me a couple of years to see it after it was released. My students kept telling me, tell us what it means. Tell us why this happens. And I said, well, okay, it's on my to-do list. I got to see this movie. And I finally saw it. And it was, it was really, it was a great, great story. Um, and, um, and I think it, it has a lot of, um, uh, like this connection between uh, what's going on around us in the in in our everyday lives and what could be a very a terrible situation into uh, the importance of our own connections with those that are closest to us. Time dilation is so cool. Time dilation is very cool. Uh, if you are lucky enough to be an astronaut, you get to live a little bit longer because uh, when you're in orbit, you're going at uh, quite a high speed, and that actually changes your uh, temporal clock relative to everybody stuck on Earth. And we're talking, you know, tiny fractions of a second, but still, you uh, you get to get time dilated. Um, and if we ever achieve, uh, you know, interstellar travel, which would take generations of humans to do, uh, those those people would have a very different temporal experience from those stuck on on Earth. What I love is that we have gotten to a place where the connection between science and Hollywood is getting stronger, and the bonds are 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 forming. That we didn't always have those resources, and people like Stan Lee had to create these universes out of his brain. But nerds like you and I—that's how we kind of first got exposed to the universe. Yeah, it was, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I kind of, my first exposure to science was kind of a combination of science fiction from Isaac Asimov and um, uh, that his, his robot series in particular was very powerful to me. And uh, that actually connected with me more than the Foundation series. Sorry for the Foundation fans out there. But it was, it was a really powerful uh, series of books. I read them all, read them multiple times. Um, and, uh, it was that kind of vision for what the future could be like combined with, um, other things I read by Asimov, which were his short essays about, um, about science. Yeah. There was one book that I actually got from my brother, uh, it was called Quasar, Quasar, Burning Bright. It was a great collection of Nice Blake reference, Tiger, Tiger in the Night. Right. You know, so it was this combination of sci-fi with real kind of uh, public science uh, books, uh, accessible books that really piqued my interests. And, uh, you know, going from that, I was like, well, I, th- I think you can understand these things scientifically. And so I continued that pursuit. Stories are good. That's how humans connect, right? Great storytelling. Yeah. And I think science needs to do a better job of that. And so as scientists, we have to figure out, you have to figure out, not me, you have to figure out how to tell these stories a little bit better. At NIST, you could probably tell stories like what we saw in the Washington Post, right, from Susan, that there's a way to convey the information. You've worked so hard in getting this research, but it all comes down to humanity. One of the things about the early science fiction writers, I tended to resonate with the sci-fi writers that amplified women 
and not the misogynistic message of some of the sci-fi writers. That was a different era and a different culture. And right now we're seeing this diversified set of voices being amplified in science journals and at universities. And to see the amplification and the encouragement for young girls, young girls of color, to get involved with science and STEM is critical for the advancement of our race. I agree. Scientists are... I mean, I hate to lump them into a big category, but typically scientists are very bad at communicating their results to the broader world. There's kind of a, you know, a real hyper-specialization in what goes on in the sciences, and it's kind of because of the rat race and the very, very um, uh, competitive nature to get into the sciences and get your name out there within that community. Uh, there's that kind of hyper uh, activity of uh, specialization and uh, promotion of your own work within that community in itself, which is the scientific community. And everything outside of that is completely shut off for most scientists. And that's a really big problem. I think it it, it is um, allowed for people to not understand science. It's, uh, it's allowed for people to get the the wrong picture of what science, uh, what the pursuit of science is. And so I think for those of us that have the luxury of becoming a scientist that kind of can step back and say, Hey, what are we doing here? And I've, um, you know, personally, I've always loved to do outreach. I've never turned down an, a public talk when it doesn't conflict with my schedule. I've, uh, given astronomy public talks as much as I can. And that being said, I, they're not perfect. I'm trying to perfect them so that they're more accessible. If you look at the, the entire um, uh, structure of science, the interface with the public really needs to bro- be broadened. And there's a lot of efforts to do this. Like we had uh, the former editor of the New York Times science pages, um, uh, Cornelia Dean here on campus. She's a, a graduate of Brown University, so the Brown alumni actually brought her in. And she's written two great books. One is called Making Sense of Science, which is for people outside of the sciences to understand what in the world is going on with these geeky scientists. And then uh, there's another book called Am I Making Myself Clear? And that is for scientists to try to get their word out to people that are not scientists. And I, I highly recommend both books. Actually, both communities should read both books because you kind of see what's going on behind, you know, in the minds of both communities. So, um, and, and one of the things that does that, that kind of is a problem in the sciences is because of this hyper-specialization and its emergence out of kind of a, a, a patriarchal, white-dominated culture, um, it's uh, kept people out. Right, because they've they've hyper specialized, they've hyper focused on a certain kind of culture, and if you're outside of that culture, they then you're not part of it. You're not part of the discussion. You you're just not expected to be part of it, and that is a real problem for the sciences. But you see it getting chipped away at too now. There's a lot of efforts to bring it to broaden that conversation, to look at things differently, to bring in people from all sorts of backgrounds to do science, and I think one of the things that I'm really proud about being at UCI is that that the concept of inclusive excellence is so focused on here and promoted here to broaden out the kind of community that's involved in the sciences, the arts, the engineering, everything. 
I love the fact that our theme song comes from an album called The Sound of Sci- uh, Science. Felipe Perez, who is the artist in residence at SETI of all places, is doing a project where he's collecting all human voices. All. Right? Not just some, but all. And so our quest has begun. We'll do this again. Thank you. Space Chunks, a nice fish films production.